the big idea here is when you're convening, put your guests on the stage, maybe literally, but certainly metaphorically. They are the people that you are celebrating and honoring and create ways that they know that you thought about them ahead of time and that they are being engaged and honored in the experiences you produce. Hey guys, I want to update you a little bit on Fort Capital. We are still acquiring Class B Industrial throughout Texas and the Sun Belt. We're looking to buy deals between 15 and up to 250 million. We're looking for portfolios now. We offer industry-leading incentives, which you can see on our website, that include an additional half a point commission for off-market deals. One thing we found was that our historical contract to close ratio is 98%. So if we're making a contract, we're getting it closed. We have a robust team to deliver an on-time smooth closing. And you can see all this at fortcapitallp.com backslash deal dash incentive. Thank you so much. Evan, welcome to the show. I'm excited about today. Chris, hey, fun to be with you. Sorry we're not in person up in the fort but uh, I will settle to be with you electronically. Looking forward to the conversation. Yep, and we get to hang out in a couple months, which I'm excited about. I've been researching you the last two days, even more so. And probably if I could synthesize all of my research to one thing, I really haven't had a guest on or really met anybody that cares about human flourishing the way you do. And we'll talk in the episode the many ways in which your life has been dedicated to this idea But I think I would maybe just start with what does that mean to you? And then I want to go backwards and go, what happened in life that this became the thing for you? So I have had a bit of vocational Tourette's. Uh, I don't mean that as a psychological slight. I know it's a real deal for a lot of people. I mean it casually. I've had a lot of sort of fits and starts and some people think it's all orchestrated to be a great grand plan. I sort of see more of it as kind of turning into cul-de-sacs, realizing it's a cul-de-sac and it's like, let's turn around. But that's given me a lot of chances to think about how different vocations, how different disciplines can sort of drive towards a common end. And so that's been through law and public policy, through ministry, philanthropy, venture capital, entrepreneurship, uh, hospitality, real estate. And you kind of ask, like, what is all that? Four. I mean, obviously, you can run after each of those disciplines in ways to refine your craft. And it might be fulfilling or meaningful, make money, make your investors money. But for me, I was really trying to understand what is my sort of North Star that's going to motivate why I work really hard and run really fast after a lot of things. And as a Christian, I can begin with a certain set of uh, an understanding of how I was made, how the world was made, how humans were made. And uh, a mentor, a friend, uh, an early executive at the Apple store actually shared this, which has just stuck with me for a long time. So I won't share his name, but he's essentially the guy who pitched Steve Jobs on having a, a retail store around the year 2000. And he makes the case to Steve that they should have this test shop on, uh, University Ave in Palo Alto. And he came with a pretty unorthodox design for what the store would look like, which is actually quite similar to what it looks like today. And this guy happens to be a strong Christian. And he said that he was just given this vision of uh, what the garden would look like and how people might 
encounter each other, encounter salespeople, encounter products in a way that would feel like you're in the garden. And I was like, did you tell Steve this when you were making this pitch? <laughs> and he was like, oh no, I, I would never tell Steve that. And so what I love about that is he said, you know, Christians, if, if, if you are a Christian and you believe in the Bible, he said, you sort of have the owner's manual to the human. And it's kind of this cheat code that if you don't have it, you don't have it. But it's really valuable to understand if you understand how we were made, then you at least have some direction around what the intent of how to make this person be what it is supposed to be. When you read the owner's manual of a vehicle, you learn how to use the clutch and shift the gears and put on the parking brake. And similarly, his case was that the Bible has some of that a playbook-like feature for understanding humanity. And so that really stuck with me, both the beauty of that as a, as a Christian, but more importantly, the importance of developing sort of a, a compatible but different set of language to articulate things that resonate with people that don't share my theological convictions, which I think you as a Christian, some of the things we believe are pretty crazy, and there are a lot of people that don't believe these things, and we need to find a way to be able to have sort of common grace and common goals to have conversations with people about these shared ends. And um, I think people reach some of these same ends through economics or philosophy or, or different religions also. So that's for me where this concept of human flourishing emerges. It's compatible with my understanding of how and why we were made, but it gives us the opportunity to engage in conversational disciplines that are much more accessible to a wider range of people. So in the early stages of this, I'd love to build a, a human flourishing movement. Let me talk more about that. There's a little flavor on how I got interested in it. Was there a moment or something, was, were your parents into this? Obviously, your faith has dictated a playbook that you intend to follow. But was there something that you can draw back on that was a moment where you're like, this is where I'm going to spend a lot of my life. Because I asked that because what you say, I think if you asked everybody like, hey, do you think humans should flourish? Maybe not everybody would say yes, but most people would say, yeah, for sure. And then you might say, well, yeah, you, you want to dedicate most of your life to it. And they'd say, ah, I, you know, I'm going to go work in software or something. You did not do that. Was there somebody or something that kind of pushed you? The refrain in my birthday cards as a child written by my parents was, where did he come from, question mark. And so my parents are amazing people. I've learned a lot from them. And I also was just a strange kid. Everyone did one thing. I sort of did the other <laughs> thing. And so I think that um, I wish I could say all this was top down that I sort of read this great treatise and came to a new understanding and then went forward with confidence in that. That happened a little bit. I'd say my time at Princeton, I got to be with some amazing faculty, including Professor Robbie George and some theologians and some philosophers and some economists. And I think refined some of my convictions about theology, about economics, about history, about politics, largely like when we look across history, what systems have worked you know, there was a, a long time in history where whether you're looking at measures of flourishing or GDP, it's flat. It's flat for like many, many thousands of years. And then it basically J-curves and rockets straight up from that. 
And largely that is the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the full realization of capitalism into Western market systems. And that is one of the greatest times of unleashing human progress that we've ever seen. We might be at a new one right now in AI. So that was some top-down learnings. But then I think of a lot of experiential stuff really came from trying to do things that I thought would be very satisfying, would lead to my own flourishing, only to be surprised that they didn't. And I had this long, you know, my first kind of de decade of my adult life was essentially competing in admissions. I just got obsessed with going to a lot of schools and uh, I went to a lot and it's just like kind of a lame game to play. Honestly, it's like, you're the winner of anyway. So I had for a while, a number of things where it's like, if I just get into this graduate school or if I just get this job or if I just get this fellowship and then play that forward, start the first company. If we just raise a million dollars, if we just raise $10 million and each of those refrains was, when that thing happens, if I'm able to get there, I will feel a great sense of, of joy and happiness, and I will sort of be in this new era. I've also done that with how much money, as a kid, oh my gosh, if there was every year in my whole life where I made $100,000, I would be set, All right? So this refrain, and then the second chapter of each of those events was essentially the same story, which is that happiness either never appeared or lasted like nine minutes. And um, a funny one was uh, we were racing. This was the first, the second company I was building and we were raising venture capital for it. And again, it was that if we just raised $10 million was this round we were putting together. And so we, we get the round done. It runs in TechCrunch. And that afternoon, like four hours later, this sort of friend, competitive frenemy of mine, kind of in the same industry, TechCrunch article runs that his company raised a hundred million dollars. <laughs> and I was like, no, like give me at least a day of feeling like I have accomplished something. And I didn't even get that. So I think some of these areas of flourishing, which are, um, some are expected, but some are really sort of unexpected. And I kind of, I'm now backing into learning about some of those through the literature, but really experienced a lot of that in my own life where I would run after trying to achieve, you know, academic or professional or financial successes. And then they really underperformed in terms of moving my own happiness needle. So what do you run after that does give you contentedness? You know, I think there's a lot around the quality of your relationships and so that is investing deeply into your marriage, into your children, into close friendships. I've been really fortunate to be in a few different groups of kind of like-hearted men who are running after some of the same things. And that is not only a great source of practical wisdom for my life, but is, man, this amazing source of feeling known and feeling connected. And so I think there's a lot of people who put big wins up on the board financially, in their influence, et cetera. But man, run around at home pretty in, in marriages that are wrecked with unhealthy relationships with their children, not tied into any serious you know, faith community or other transcendent set of experiences, disconnected from their neighbors, potentially physically unhealthy, possibly addicted to substances, 
heavily medicated. I mean, the, the high level story across the country and especially the entrepreneurial class is we are you know, fatter and sicker and more depressed and more medicated despite massive advances in technology and in medicine. And so it's a real quandary around, I think what it says is we've been running after things that we thought would be satisfying and ignoring the ones that now the research and our experience is really starting to say, hey, this is the kind of thing that when you're practicing forgiveness, when you're practicing connectedness, when you're finding a way to serve someone that has less than you, not only does the Western tradition or the Bible or philosophy say, which those things do say those things, um, but we're starting to see this really in the empirical literature, which is really exciting because it's not just about persuading Christians that they should do Christian things. It's about exploring an area of science. It is really about what is the human lived experience about? Yes, for our own lives or how we lead our own lives, but also as business owners, as civic leaders, as policymakers, as elected officials, you know, what are we trying to optimize for? I'll end on this little example. There is this global movement, you know, these sort of global overlords are at the United Nations and other multinational organizations sort of try to- Is this to a WEF? World Economic Forum, th that entire world of sort of the Davos, Jet Setter, Harvard faculty space, you know, they spent a lot of time developing various ways of measuring the success of a society. So they developed the Sustainable Development Goals as a product of the United Nations, and it does have some things in it that are good. It's measures around access to education, women's rights, clean water, et cetera. But the great irony is that at the moment when the United States is an extremely high performer on the SDGs, it's the same year when for a pretty large subset of the American population, the white male, the lived reality for the white male in America is so unpleasant that we've started killing ourselves at such a rate through suicide, that our aggregate life expectancy has gone down. So the fact that we are peak SDG performance and choosing to just exit stage left through suicide or deaths of despair, I think calls into real question this alternative regime that these people have created that like, there's gotta be something else out there that we're missing. Can you go a little deeper on that? Why, what came out that at the time, and, and what is SDG by the way? The SDGs are these sustainable development goals, which is this set of goals that were kind of promulgated, uh, sponsored through the United Nations that many nations will sort of sign up for saying, here's how we measure on these goals. And then a lot of global philanthropy is organized around, hey, are you helping move the needle on some of these SDGs? So this SDG is sustainable development goal. Okay. And so if you had to go a little deeper, why... Why at a time when we're at an all-time high do we start exiting left? And and you might say, well, because we agreed to it at the World Economic Forum or whatever, whoever's coming up with these rules. But why would we agree to that if we were doing so well? The SDGs operate as a North Star among a lot of economic development people. And it's a people that have their own religion and the good news is that there are some alternative and competing ways that we might understand human progress. And so the reason that this discussion 
matters is that major amounts of capital, mostly financial capital, because large pension funds or certainly family offices will allocate in ways to specifically move SDGs. So if we swapped out the SDG goals with different goals, we would move a lot of money. It also has to do a lot with how people spend their time. I mean, you have, you know, many elite, I want to go change the world, college kids that want to go out and work at nonprofits, et cetera, you know, soak up the conversation on SDGs saying, oh my gosh, this is what I want to organize my life around. So there's an alternative framework. There's several alternative frameworks coming out right now. And one of them is called the Global Human Flourishing Project run out of Harvard. And it's this really amazing set of academics setting out on the largest sociological study ever conducted. So it's a $50 million project following a quarter million people in 32 countries for five years, and they probably put five more years on that, so probably for 10 years. They are investigating uh, many dozens of hypotheses about what are the things that might drive your flourishing. Uh, Some that I find really interesting, one of them they're investigating is around forgiveness. So they're actually asking this survey. So they're hiking up a mountain in Malaysia to find this woman. They'll find her five years in a row and interview her for 30 minutes. And all this gets compiled and analyzed and put in this data project. So they'll ask her about, when is the last time that you forgave someone? When is the last time someone forgave you? And they ask about kind of the qualitative nature of what that experience was like. Another one is around practices of gratitude. There are a lot around um, friendship and connectedness. But when we look at this massive exiting of stage left in the last number of years, COVID was massive kerosene on that fire that accelerated a lot of that. But the depths of despair were really starting before that. I think a lot of the, the language and the resonance of Donald Trump found connection with many people in this country that feel disconnected. They feel like they don't have a purpose. They feel like they're not needed. They have, through their own choice, but with lots of marketing dollars, come to consume 35 plus hours of television a week. For men, it's many dozens of hours of uh, online gaming a week. Amazing, crazy high consumption of alcohol and other substances, consumption of pornography. You look across those things and it sets up a really dismal life experience for someone. There's this really crazy and sad study about the deaths of despair. And powerfully, but sadly, we actually have a lot of data about people's last moments right before they take their life because it's often recorded or filmed and, and they send it or leave it behind really sad. And so a sociologist actually analyzed, they said, what happens in those last moments? And the most common thing said in those last moments was, no one needed me. And it's a really powerful concept that struck a chord with me across a a few different areas of things that we're trying to build and work on. Marvin Olasky is this really neat guy who went on to help shape a lot of the White House domestic policy in the early 2000s. He told me the story that in the sort of halfway houses in Texas 100 years ago, so if you were indigent and homeless on the streets, there were these homes, kind of like a modern day shelter 
that would have food and temporary housing. And the rule, if a man came to ask to stay there, was for several hours before he got accepted into the house, um, he would chop wood. There's a big pile of wood outside, he would chop wood. And if a woman came, I think it was something like they would ask her to a set of linens to sew. So she would work for several hours kind of as a way to gain acceptance into the space. And Marvin's explanation of this was not that their labor was actually needed. Uh, There was enough wood chopped, enough dresses sewn, et cetera. It was to show the person that they were able to create something of value and to create the sense that they had a role to play in the success of that place, of that community. And it's that little concept of like, does someone need me? You know, I've read a lot about many of the recovery groups, 12-step programs, you know, every person has a role, you know, someone's pouring the coffee, someone's cleaning out the coffee, someone's putting out the trash, someone's getting the trash, someone's setting up the row one of chairs, someone's set up 202 of chairs. Everyone has a job. So I think there is something fundamental about if one view says, we are your overlords. I will make sure you have political representation, clean water, access to education, free from violence, all these things. And we'll just have you sit there and enjoy that set of freedoms. If no one needs you, like who cares if you have clean water, right? So I think that's the disconnect from the overlords who sort of see it as this Machiavellian, I'm going to orchestrate for you this whole environment that makes it look like you will flourish. Where someone who lives in a place that has crime and they didn't have a lot of opportunity and illness may be abounding. You know, those are a lot of real measures that make it look like they're not doing well, but man, they could be connected. They could be needed. They could be known. So it's a complex topic, but if we shape some of these big threads on what we really think drives human flourishing, gosh, we could move a lot of money and a lot of energy and and passion in the world in a way that actually puts the right kind of wins on the target. The great irony of what you just said is the more that these overlords or call it government agencies have tried to create that utopia, you can make an argument in a lot of ways, the more destructive things have become in in recent times. So maybe a question here, and there's a quote that you said that actually resonated in what you just said. You said, what if you assumed everyone you met is in a battle that you couldn't see Most men in America say they don't have a single person to whom they can confide in. So you have this growing swell of, call it being disconnected and maybe issues, but at the same time, this distancing from everybody. The internet was supposed to bring us all together. In a lot of ways, it's kind of brought us apart. And so I'm throwing a lot into this kind of question, but what's the role of government in human flourishing or is it, should it be left to the private sector. In Democracy in America, Tocqueville's major observations, you know, on his travels in America, he was obviously from the continent and uh, knew continental Europe really well. But what struck him about the uniqueness of this foreign country, America, he was visiting, was that Americans did an amazing number of things with each other. Burke, his you know, colleague, had the line that when the French want to get something done, they demand that the government do it. When the British want something done, they demand that the aristocracy do it. And when the Americans want something done, 
They simply do it. And Tocqueville saw this in his era. It was the equivalent of the Lions Club, the Rotary, the Elks, Bridge Club. Civic associationalism is the phrase that describes just the most amazing. You go to any small town and you see that there are the American flag is put up every day and there's window boxes and there's a July 4th parade and there's a bake sale. You know, there's no city agency that's doing that. It is this something uniquely American. Back to, you know, the Puritans showing up, landing in a really rough Jamestown. (laughs) There was no federal agency to uh, lay out a spread of food or create opportunities for volunteerism (laughs) in Jamestown. So it's just in American's blood to kind of do this stuff together in a really beautiful, powerful way. And I think there were kind of two events in the 20th century that really set us back there. So we've got this amazing social safety net, social infrastructure in the United States created through civic life. So it's it's not business for the most part. It's definitely not government of any level. It's It's mostly what we call nonprofit organizations, but forget the tax structure of it. It's mostly Americans being awesome together. Okay, because they deeply care about each other. One of these man stories that I love, one of my favorite places to visit is Ellis Island, where I think in one year, they had a year where 10 million European refugees came through as immigrants, just you know, off the tip of Manhattan in New York. And what is so amazing about that is there were, as, as they would get processed at Ellis Island, there were these civic organizations that were basically organized by country. So the Norwegians had this group in Manhattan that they knew when other Norwegians were gonna be on a boat and they knew when they were getting processed through Ellis Island. And this park ranger at Ellis Island was telling me this story. He said that essentially, you know, tens of thousands of people per day would be greeted by their national or ethnic receiving private organization where they would be given a place to stay, they would be given food to eat and essentially connected to a job. So we essentially had a privately run, you know, dozens of different languages, dozens of different foods, very complex system that essentially resettled tens of millions of refugees with like really high performance, right? And by the way, it was basically free. I mean, to think of the complexity that was pulled off in the story of resettling the immigrants to Ellis Island, it's really this beautiful, amazing thing. And now you look at something like, you know, Department of Homeland Security on the border trying to resettle or keep safe thousands of women, children, et cetera, coming across the border. I mean, we're spending billions of dollars building tents and prisons and drones and I mean, what a mess, right? Like we need to get the people that resettled the Ellis Island people down here and have them teach us something. But these two things that happened in the 20th century were pretty significant setbacks. And they were uh, essentially the presidencies of FDR and LBJ. Wonderful thing, there were, there were some great things that those two presidents did, but what happens in times of great depressions, of seeing great needs, of people hungry in the street. Those were times when the system, the civil society system was was taxed, it was strained. The, the churches and the synagogues and the social welfare private groups could not meet the demand of people in the food lines. And when that happened, 
federal government steps in and says, we must have this welfare program to care for American citizens. We must create this social security program. We must create Medicare. We must create welfare, you know, Medicaid because there are people dying in the streets. The challenge is that once those programs get spun up, they have proven impossible to shut down. So in that short little moment of failure, it meant that it was a hundred year defeat for our civic associations. On your website, you say, if you care about humans, build a company. And one of the things, like one of the major ones, and it's really a network, but it's also a company that I want to talk about is Teneo. And our good friend, John Marsh, I asked him before this, I said, what should I talk to Evan about? And he responded, he said, Evan has three superpowers, gathering people, honoring relationships and creating culture. All three of those things, I think, were expressed through Teneo. And so I want to just kind of go through what is Teneo and what brought you to getting some people together that has now become a really international organization. Many college kids, I think, are excited to go, quote, change the world. And something happened along the way such that when you want to go make a difference in the world, the assumption is that you might engage in politics or policy, so you could run for office or get into policymaking or advocacy, maybe go into media and journalism and kind of expose and tell stories. You could work in nonprofits because, of course, they have great missions and save the world. And for some reason, we hold business quite low in our sort of social status, unfortunately. I came to believe through Peter Thiel, who I got to know when I was in graduate school, he told me this brief story about the starting of Palantir and now, you know, tens of billions of dollar data technology company. So uh, he and Alex Karp were sitting around and they watched 9-11 happen. They saw the towers crash and they were like, what can we do for our country? We are nerds and probably can't enlist in the Marines. And yet we figured out how to beat the Russians who are great in online theft through building PayPal. They became very good at understanding how money moves on the internet. And they said, I think we can take those amazing skills that we have and we can use them to build a company that can have a dramatic effect of advancing the interests of the United States and its allies. And that was such a novel thing for me to think that out of a passion to save the world, you would build a company. I kind of used to think, well, you do nonprofits or law, and I now think that's really not the main tool to pick up. And then at least my next flawed thinking was, oh, well, business is valuable because business people make a lot of money and they can use that money to then go do good things. So like go make a lot of money and then give it away to World Vision or whatever, politics or whatever, and then that saves the world. But actually what I came to understand is that businesses themselves, in first in how they care for and manage their own people, which in some cases is like Walmart employs, what, 2 million people. I mean, it's running a city, right? But for many companies, the much larger impact is they have on their suppliers and their customers. And so I really came to believe that whatever big public problem you're talking about, fentanyl, addiction, isolation, global warming, transportation, disconnectedness with neighbors and urban design, all those problems have some complexity of why government made them so bad, 
But man, call for entrepreneurs to say, I'm going to build a business to particularly tackle that public problem. And we can talk more about why I think businesses as tools are much more effective at the others, but I'm a big believer in that. And I also lament that most of the world doesn't share that opinion. Biden takes Elon off of some recognized climate change advisory group. I mean, that every environmentalist is not clamoring to give Elon the Nobel Prize for building Tesla is just completely insane to me. And it bodes really poorly for the country. So I came up for air. I was building a company and I looked around and realized that a lot of my friends, while in college, we all had projects and things we were really excited about sort of as extracurriculars, magazines, edited newspapers, ran political groups, faith groups, advocacy groups. You know, as college kids, you you feel very important because you're the uh, secretary of the uh, Northeastern Libertarian Club or whatever lame thing. It is lame, but it feels cool. And it feels interesting because you're able to say like, this is something I care about and this is something I'll be involved in. So I looked around and I said, gosh, I'm kind of sad for the state of the souls for the vocational fulfillment of a lot of my friends and kind of myself, where if years out of school, many of us are marching down kind of the path of being a, a corporate legal drone, a management consultant, an investment banker. And those are fine and great careers, but man, we kind of lost the fire of being involved in things that we knew were really important for the world. So the opening pass was like, gosh, what if we could create some sort of organization, some kind of network that identifies these people who love the same things, share values and some commitments philosophically, and are entrepreneurially minded of wanting to work together to create and be a part of cool projects that advance this concept of human flourishing in the world. So it started as an email list. And then, you know, fast forward, it's now tens of millions of dollars and thousands of people and hundreds of events and grew in really fun and unexpected ways along the way to be, you know, really one of the the ventures, the projects that I'm most proud of that we got to build. I want to just spend a little more time here and, and mainly more on just community building. Like, okay, so you started as an email list. If it's like, what are the best practices for creating communities of any size? I know that's kind of a loaded question, but you've built several of these communities. In fact, you've built lots of them throughout your career. So you have a community building skill. So if we just title this part of the podcast, how to build a community, how do you build a community? We had some great inspiration from seeing some really powerful, effective communities that gave us kind of a, a recipe book. We took some of those recipes, experimented, and really uh, we ate our own dog food and we surveyed the heck out of people <laughs> to really create kind of a constant feedback loop. And so when you do that on any project for 15 years and iterate, you know, at least four to six times a year, I think you can really become excellent at anything. And so that's the spirit we set out in. And I'll share just a few of the principles that really stood out to me. First is participation over content. A lot of people that are trying to build communities have some goal. You know, they want to liberate the Palestinians or advance the interest of China or get people excited about gardening. And the idea that they begin with is, gosh, if we just get these people together and then give them all the right information, then they will be equipped with all the knowledge that they need. 
we think that misses the mark. First of all, all that information is completely available on the internet for free and no one has chosen to consume it. (laughs) So access to information is not the problem. Number two is when you introduce participation, when we design and produce events, we hope no one feels like an audience member, which is really hard to do when you have 500 people coming to something. So our hope at a major event is that when you're coming there and people ask, you know, a coworker says, oh, where are you going? We hope that even the most junior person coming to one of our events would not say, you know, I'm going to this conference or I signed up for this event. They would say something like, oh, I'm getting to go lead a seminar on starting a podcast. Every person that comes has a role. If you're not a subject matter expert, maybe your role is you're going to run the morning Pilates or you're going to be a table host and be really intentional about the people coming to your table and know them by name. So we really try to give as many people as many roles as possible. So our events look kind of crazy. Over several days, we'd have hundreds of events. And an event might be five people having coffee, talking about working through, you know, managing an aging or ailing parent. You know, those five people in that conversation can be incredibly powerful. So on the one hand, that sounds obvious, but just to put it in stark contrast, we built this other community uh, earlier in, uh, in my life and essentially kind of sold it, handed off the leadership to this much larger organization. And it was, uh, they took it over. They had old people who are donors. Usually donors are old people. And their model of social change, their model of building community is, gosh, if we just had a ballroom filled with a thousand people, and like an old person on the stage saying things at them, they would just be equipped and unleashed to wreck shop on society. And, you know, when you're a thousand people in a room and you feel like cattle, you're being herded into this thing. And that organization has tens of thousands of people. It's very well funded and exerts like zero cultural purchase. So that was a sad to see it kind of go that direction. So that is participation over content. Another one I might pick up is vulnerability over strength. In a lot of leadership organizations, young people, YPO, old people, whatever, we like to tell stories about winning and we hold out people that have more zeros than other people and more exits, et cetera. And we sort of kind of realized that on a relative basis, most of the people that we wanted to be in community with had a lot of other communities they were part of where they celebrate winning. And there's something really powerful about vulnerability. Brene Brown has this line, which I love. And she says, why is it that when you see vulnerability practiced by someone else, you perceive it as strength. But when you practice vulnerability yourself, you experience it as weakness. So what does that mean? What's an example of that? If, Chris, if you were to tell me the story about an ailing parent and emotional lament that you had about disconnectedness with your father and how you wish you had done things in a different way and you're still grieving through that process, you know, I would hear you say this story and I would just think, wow, that is so awesome that he's sharing that. Like what a bold, cool story I want to get to know him more. I want to pursue that. It's inviting. But when I'm on the stage or in a small group of people 
And I, someone asked me about a more vulnerable subject and I start to say those words, what I'm feeling in myself usually is weakness. I feel sad and low and incompetent and embarrassed and naked. And so if you can just run that loop enough times of seeing someone else communicate vulnerably and know that there is great strength in that, it can just be a superpower for your own personal development and your own ability to connect with other people. So that I think is one of the ways that our events feel very strange is that we have this set of things called morning stories. And it's a chance we ask people around different themes. They might want to share five minute morning stories and the tears and the pain, but also the healing that has resulted from the opportunity for someone to get to share their story on a stage. That invitation to someone to share the story about their child or their loss or their father or their addiction or whatever it is, the invitation itself and the ability to get to go deliver that is like one of the most powerful ways of saying to that person, your story matters. So one thing I have, it's easy when I think about creating a community to maybe get eight or 10 people together. And, and that would be in reference to maybe your email list. But now the community is tens of thousands of people. And so the question is just kind of, do you think about communities that are tens of thousands of people the same way you thought about those first 10? Or is there different things that come into play as the community gets larger? Yeah, as the community grows, I think the mostly it creates real challenges to delivering a really high level of hospitality and a really intimate level of connection. The reason that you might want to grow the community, however, is the power that results from just the size of a network, but also kind of a wonky concept we call the strength of weak ties. And I give a talk on this every year and both people in the audience love the talk. No, and so the basic concept is this. So Mark Granvetter, the sociologist, set out to uncover, answer the following question. He said, let's say you take someone and they have six close friends and they are in the status right now of needing a job. So this person, Jim, needs a job. The fact that Jim needs a job and has these close friends means that a job has not, a job is not available through his close network. Because if it were, he would already have it because he is tied into that network. So the counterintuitive point is when you ask someone, if you need a job, who are you most likely to get it through a close friend or a weak tie? The literature actually says that it's always weak ties because close friends are already in your process of providing you resources. So what does that mean practically? Peter Thiel gave me this advice. You know, if you are a MBA finance person, go cultivate weak ties with people dissimilar to you. Many of us suffer from what we call network homophily. We spend time with people like us, age, race, gender, career, city, religion, et cetera. And what that practically means is that you 
don't really access that many different kinds of capital. Yes, there's financial capital, so you can access different pools of capital, but cultural capital, spiritual capital, political capital. So a larger and intentionally curated diverse network gives you exposure to a much larger set of what we call weak ties. That means that we get emails that come out. One guy was stuck on the side of a mountain in Nepal and this bat phone request goes out pings to the State Department, pings to this defense contractor, like an hour later, a helicopter shows up to pick this guy up off the side of a mountain. The number craziest, you know, someone's dad just got diagnosed with some rare kind of cancer. People see this, it turns out that their roommate is now the postdoc at Johns Hopkins, which is the leading place for that, and they like get the person in. So it's really just fun to see how a large, diverse network that's committed to a common cause can really drive all sorts of change. One of the ways we think about activating that network, though, is as we pull people into the network, we kind of ask two sides of the same equation. Number one, we say, hey, tell us about a project. It could be your day job, but it might be like a side hustle that you're really excited about. Some people want to run for office. They want to write a book, start a podcast, build a club, join a board, be more involved in their kid's class, learn chess, whatever. Tell us what that is. Step two, we want to know what are your superpowers? So what are the things that people come to you about and how are you able to, how do you find yourself creating value for other people? Then we run a very human powered approach to understanding how to pair those things. So my hope is like in any group of 50 people, if we were in a room, so YPO does this, we try to do this exercise called the one thing. So you put 50 people in a room and you have each person share very briefly, what's the one thing that if you got it, learned it, whatever, would change everything. And what happens is you go around the room, everyone says their one thing. After you say your one thing, you know, my dad is beginning stages of Alzheimer's and the one thing would be a memory care center where we both feel connected or whatever. The practice is at least you wait and then you wait until one person in the room says, hey, I got you. And it doesn't mean the person has the answer. They might. But it kind of means like, I will be your running buddy on this thing. So the high level principle we try to really drive is to be in a community, we want you to make your needs known. Let's find easy ways for you to tell us what you're working on and ways that we can be helpful. And then number two, when you see those needs surfaced, get in, send that email. Say like, how can I be a part of what you're up to? There's nerdy and practical ways this plays out. We do a lot of innovation around communications. And so we host a lot of lunches. You know, most lunches are are pretty terrible. I mean, the food is bad. You're at a 10 top table. Someone hogs the conversation the whole time. The speaker goes on way too long. Every place that's corporate has no windows. I mean, just the good news for people that want to be better at convening and hospitality is that the bar is so low. Okay, it's so low. So we designed an event here. I'll tell you briefly about this event. So we think about the future of Austin. We get to live in Austin, Texas and think about the future of this city. So we do a series of lunches with kind of the most influential people in, in the town. And we, we sit on the lawn. So you're in the beautiful sunlight uh, in the shade. We have a great buffet of like fresh food. Please, why is every corporate lunch essentially a gluten festival? It's like, miles of bread, right? Like, give me some vegetables, please, for the love of God. Okay, so healthy food, healthy, fresh food. 
we do four top tables, which is like the caterers find it really annoying. It's kind of hard to source four top tables. But basically, when you think about, just think about the math, a eight top table for 60 minutes versus a four top table for 60 minutes. Smaller tables mean people get to speak twice as much at their table. So please end the eight top, go to the four top. My dream would be like 42 tops, but that's like, that's really extreme. And then there's the one top, but don't, let's not talk about the one top. That's a separate top. No, you need at least the two top. And so we do this thing. So everyone's gathering around. We have a welcome cocktail. Always really important to have non-alcoholic drinks, especially during the day, keep people hydrated. You've got uh, someone on a silver tray with some lemonades and some waters and some iced tea. People get there. You want people to show up at something and always feel like it was planned ahead of time for them to be there. Ash Marsh says this, that hospitality is thinking about someone before they arrive. So where do they park? What signs do they see? When they walk in the front door, how are they greeted? Are they getting a name tag? Be really deliberate about those things. They get there, they're, they're given a beverage immediately. It's very clear where they're supposed to be milling around. Then you've got to have one or multiple hosts. Jim, this is Sally. Oh, you guys would love to get to know each other on this thing. So then we do, everyone is around in a big circle. We frame this one as a, a prompt. What is the ambition of Austin? was the sort of topic. And we said in the invitation ahead of time, come with a one-liner, your answer, what is the ambition of Austin? You'll So give them, you don't wanna put people on the spot. And so we go around. I'm Sandra, I am the CEO of this tech company and the ambition of Austin should be empowering the next generation of female entrepreneurs, whatever it is. So we went around, everyone goes around. And then this one, we did open seating. We like place cards sometimes, but this one we tried open seating. We said, hey guys, before you go get your food, why don't you find one other person here that you kind of were curious about their answer to that question? And so people are empowered to kind of like pick a seat somewhere. So they get a seat, sit at their four top. And then we had a wonderful sort of coffee and dessert spread after that was kind of a, a, a casual ending. So it wasn't everyone get up and leave at the same time. So there were just elements that we looked to shoot Martha Stewart, Wayne Gadara. Danny Meyer, there's some excellent books that are a little bit more on the, not network design side, but just on the hospitality side of things. And I think that's a real art that has been lost, uh, the art of the dinner party. And I think the misnomer a lot of people have is that, oh, uh, I don't wanna host people for dinner in my house because it's messy, we don't have fine china, I'm not a great chef. But the beauty of of dining in a home, it's just the intimate connection you get by being in someone's home. The conversation always takes a very different direction. It goes much longer. It's much more intimate. And so in a, in a future life, I would love to find a way to spur on more people to host dinner parties, to engage in the practice of hospitality. I think it is sad that we lost home ec. Is there ever like one thing that you see people do that you're like, man, I can't believe that people keep doing this. Like what's the one thing to stay away from that seems like everybody still does it. And maybe it's just carb loading and not serving enough vegetables. But there's probably, if you see enough gatherings, you're always like, God, I can't believe people continue to do this. But obviously they're doing it because it seems like a best practice. Is there just a fatal flaw that's more obvious to you than maybe someone like me that hasn't thrown a dinner party yet? I think a common assumption is that I, as the host, have a lot to offer and that there's a lot of content and information I need to share. 
this particularly happens in organizational contexts. So you imagine you go to these fundraisers, political fundraiser, ministry fundraiser, launching a new project, whatever. And like the moment you sit down at the table, like the presentation starts. And yes, you're convening these events and you have some purpose at the event. But I think if you could turn the dial from 90% you, 10% them, switch it the other way. Like imagine you're hosting a fundraiser for international justice mission. Currently, they might do a great job with this, but imagine they get up there, you know, people file in, windowless ballroom, some hotel, you sit down, they serve you kind of tired surf and turf, white linens, bad florals, those conference chairs that have that like beaded thing. Anyway, it's all the same. They get up there, as soon as you sit down, food is served, someone stands up, and it's this long procession of like some donor who's loved being involved. Gary gets up and tells the story of liberating women. They have maybe a woman get up who talks about her story of being liberated. All that's beautiful. 90% them, 10% the guests. Imagine flipping that on its head. What if the prompt was, hey, we're going to share a three-minute video just to get everyone up to speed on the work of IJM, but we're so honored that you are spending this time with us today and that you're already on your own journey to defend justice. So we'll watch this quick backgrounder, but then we really want to have your table host at your table go around, and I want each person to share a story about how you've encountered injustice. And the event planner probably is like, but wait, we didn't communicate all the programs and successes that we have. We didn't get 17 minutes of explaining the mission of what we do. Coming out of that event, I mean, I bet, I mean, I get emotional thinking about it. No one has ever actually asked me that question. That is the name of the organization where we're donors. So I imagine that I myself would have, you know, a powerful little moment and experience around answering that question myself. But man, to get to do that at a table with maybe some friends, maybe some new friends, I am certain that there'd be something said at that table from one of those people that like just is is beautiful and hard and, and powerful. So the big idea here is when you're convening, put your guests on the stage maybe literally, but certainly metaphorically, they are the people that you are celebrating and honoring and create ways that they know that you thought about them ahead of time and that they are being engaged and honored in the experiences you produce. I think that perfectly sums up what you, I found this on the internet, a controversial claim of yours that's not actually so controversial once I read it, that if you want to change the world, build a group of friends with a common goal. And that's why I've been so interested in this topic, because you've done it masterfully well. I have one more question that is totally not related to anything we've talked about, but it was on the three personal things you've done. You said, I wrote and passed a bill to protect international mail order brides. What on earth is that? I have to know. So I worked for a really amazing man, Frank Wolf, who was a congressman from Virginia who co-founded and co-chaired the Congressional Human Rights Caucus, which is this group of congressmen. The other members were Nancy Pelosi, Chris Smith, and Tom Lantos. Tom Lantos, the only survivor of a Holocaust internment camp to ever serve in the U.S. Congress. And they were pioneers on the most cutting edge of 
Xinjiang Uyghur province and Darfur and internally displaced people doing the most amazing work through Congress. And one of the issues that we got to work on was the mail order bride industry. So it turns out- Which is what? To be clear, what is the mail order bride industry? So uh, how it usually works is if you are, it's a male, it's an American man who wants a wife who pays a international agency. They may have a meetup of 50 or 100 prospective often Russian or Southeast Asian women that have been flown into some house in New Jersey where you're kind of walking around like you're adopting a pet, but you're picking a wife. And there are lots of cases where, not all, but there are many cases where the woman is being sold a bill of goods. I mean, she knows nothing about the guy and is kind of choosing to get married. And so we had a few cases that landed on our plate of, uh, of the women getting killed and or ending up as sex slaves. You know, they don't speak the language. They show up with no connections. They're like shown a bedroom in a locked basement and become a sex slave. And that's the rest of their life. So we were like, this is bad. We should work on this. So we wrote this thing called International Marriage Broker Regulation Act, which I assumed would have like absolutely no opposition. It turns out there are a lot of businesses that make a lot of money trading women internationally. And so Yahoo all these like big internet platforms sent lobbyists to oppose our bill saying, you know, gosh, like, are you against love? Uh, are you against marriage? It's like, no, we're against death. So we watered the bill all the way down and did get it passed, which basically said, when you apply for this particular kind of visa, this international marriage visa, if the man had been convicted of a violent crime, we had to notify the woman. So at least she knew what she was getting into. But it was kind of this sad, we were proud of the bill. I wish we could have done more, but it was this kind of sad window into the links to which sort of big corporations and lobbyists will go to trample human rights in order to, you know, continue running their business. All right. Then I have to ask this one last question because I was watching an interview that you did and I thought I'm tying this to the way corporations act which again, that doesn't seem to make much sense, what you just said. It wouldn't seem like that would be a good decision by a corporation, but they do that. They also, I think this is something else that's been weaponized. It's an acronym. It goes by ESG. And you had a really good way of putting how you think of ESG as not cramming things that a company should do. I think you said something about solar panels. Don't judge a company on whether it has solar panels on its roof. Instead, invest in companies that are making solar panels. I think you called it going after the languishes of humanity, not the, I can't remember the other part of it, but can you just expand on that? How do you think about ESG investing? And we'll bring it home on this. ESG in for environmental, social, and governance, and are is an acronym that describes various indices that have been built out as tools to be additional ways to measure the performance and health of a business alongside lots of traditional financial metrics. And there are many great things on the ESG lists in the area of, of environmental. I mean, is it a a well-digging operation, a mining operation in Congo that has massive pollution and that violates the human rights of children through slave labor that's run by a corrupt CEO and there's no board. I mean, that's violating ES and G. So there's many great things in ESG. 
a challenge in the ESG movement is some of those have been really elevated in Europe. There is a real passion on being anti-carbon in sort of the green movement, climate change movement. In the United States, the sort of passion du jour is around DEI, standing for you know diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so the reason that these areas of emphasis are concerning is that the people getting interested in them are massive capital allocators, major pensions, major asset managers that possess extreme influence over pressuring public companies and what they focus on. And the spirit behind the DEI ESG movement is good, which is that we are excited that business has the opportunity to move society in the direction where more people flourish. I would argue that some of those factors they elevate not only don't lead to flourishing, they actually lead to languishing. And it comes full circle to this alternate approach, which is like, man, if an investor is asking me and they say something like, well, gosh, we want you to report metrics to us about how your companies are improving the lives of your users, send us this data. I would say, gosh, I love that you're interested in how the companies that we're investing in and how our firm is shaping society. That's why all of our founders started their companies in the space of education, learning, human potential, human development, et cetera. They are on a personal mission to change the world in this very area. That's why our founders started our firm and why I'm a part of Learn Capital is we're so excited about how companies can lift people up and give them opportunity and drive to their own flourishing. So in a weird way, we're actually very similar to each other because we're both excited that business can shape society in positive ways. But the question is, which of those are kind of dialed up or dialed down? So when we get questions, things things like, you know, tell me about your companies. Are your companies themselves running on solar power? Are they monitoring their wastewater runoff? Have they put X number of diversity candidates on the board? I think that is kind of missing the forest for the trees because a way bigger impact on shaping society is going to be, are they building goods and services that touch not their hundred employees, but their million users? So we like asking the same questions. We think they might ask some of the wrong questions, but it's definitely a movement that whether you're a consumer or an allocator or uh, an entrepreneur, it is a global movement that has spun up very quickly and has big stakes for where society goes. On that note, Evan, it has been an honor to have you on today. Truly, like I really admire you for the way you're approaching the world. And I hope that because of you, we see more humans flourish. Thank you. So fun to be with you, Chris. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 